Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. What exactly causes headaches? Are there different types of headaches? Sometimes people say they have a tension headache or a sinus headache or a migraine headache. Is there a difference? Can one lead to the other? Could you have all three headaches all at once? Well, that sounds pretty miserable, and I hope the answer to that is no. But today we're going to learn a lot. I'm going to learn a lot. I have my friend, Dr. Monique Canonico from Kaiser Permanente here, and she's a neurologist for almost two decades. I am dating you. (laughs) I've been at Straub almost two decades, so we're both getting older. And today we're going to be talking about the different types of headaches. What are the different treatments? What are the latest things out there? What are some all natural things about that you can consider to treat headaches? And what are the differences between the types of headaches? So thank you for joining me today on The Body Show. You're welcome. Now let's just go basics. Headaches. What what causes it? Why do I get them? And are there different types of headaches? Yeah. So just, you know, sh- looking at the sheer numbers, about 38 million people in the United States suffer from some type of headache. And most commonly, it is a migraine. You've heard and mentioned that, you know, a patient might have a tension type of headache, and that's another uh, sort of subcategory. But really, most people who have a headache have migraine. And what differentiates a migraine from other types of headaches. I mean, you can have, you know, I know if I don't drink my regular caffeine, I get a headache, but that's not really a migraine headache. What makes a headache characterized as a migraine? So migraine is a an inherited headache that really is um, a, a blood vessel dilation. And there's this complex chemical cascade where these proteins are elaborated and the vessels in your head actually dilate, and the patient will often say it is throbbing. And the reason it's throbbing is because it's actually a vascular phenomenon. There's literal throbbing going on. Okay. Exactly. Is it one-sided? Is it both-sided? Is it? Yeah. So most commonly, it is one-sided. And there are patients, though, who alternate. So maybe 60% of them are on the right, but they'll occasionally have it on the left. And that is to be distinguished from the patients who have more of a tension-type headache. They'll often describe it as more of a pressure. Sometimes their upper shoulder muscles are really tight, and and a massage may help those. But really, the most common headache is a migraine. Sometimes the migraines have a warning before them, and that will herald the onset. But mostly, headaches are migraine. So what would be a warning? Might it be a smell? Might it be a sound? What If somebody has chronic migraines, and we'll define chronic in just a moment, what would some of those warnings be? Right. So the patient may have a specific trigger, uh, an unusual smell like gasoline or magic markers or perfume is often a trigger. And then what happens is they will see uh, an unusual vision, and we call that the aura, and that's the warning that something is happening in their brain. It's a neurochemical change. And they might see a jagged lightning bolt uh, image. They may see somebody's face, half of it is missing. And they might see little white sparkly worms that are little sparkles that can also herald the onset. So sometimes they have a visual warning. Sometimes they might just have numbness or tingling or even transient weakness. So these sound pretty dramatic. If you have chronic migraines, you probably get used to what your triggers are. What makes it the a chronic 
migraine condition versus you have these every once in a while and maybe it's just episodic and not necessarily a regular pattern. Right. So when you go to your doc, one of the things they'll ask about is the frequency. And if it's over 15 days a month, we do classify that as chronic migraine. Why is that important? Well, of chronic migraine sufferers, 85% of them are women. And so there's a, a certain demographic that tend to what we say chronify uh, or change from episodic, which is every now and then, to chronic. And that's uh, a little bit more difficult to manage. And it sounds like, you know, particularly if there's a female predominance, is it is it around a time when there might be hormone changes? Or would it be more during childbearing years as opposed to other times? Might there be a hormone connection to it? Both, yes. Childbearing is often, they say, after the birth of my first son, I had the onset of these headaches, and they've been going on ever since then. Uh, the other time is the perimenopausal years. And my OBGYN colleagues have just informed me that menopause is 10 years leading up to the end of your periods and 10 years after. So it's quite a Why do they keep depressing time. us? I right? know. Thank you. Like just when you thought, oh, <laughs> just a year or two before, you're like, it's going to be two decades. I mean, really? Wasn't there any good news? Okay. So all right, so that there's this potential hormone effect to these these migraines. And then if you don't have migraines more than 15 days a month, would that be considered just episodic then? Precisely. Yes. And are they treated differently? They are uh, not from a rescue standpoint. So rescue is basically what you reach for when you get your headache, and that's when you're getting the sign or the symptom. Um, those Most of those people have their own regime, and that's what we call the rescue. But that's in contradistinction to the preventive therapy. And typically, if you're episodic, we may not have to do prevention. But people who are greater than 15 days a month, it is impacting lifestyle, and prevention is very important. So let's talk about prevention for a moment, because there's a variety of things that people can do. There's lifestyle things they might be able to do if they know that... There are certain uh, times if they don't get enough sleep or if they're not getting enough of a certain nutrient that they need to be careful. This could elicit their migraine attacks. There are also some herbal treatments that are out there that have been tried and true and studies have shown they've been helpful. And then there's some new things that are out there. So let's first talk about some of the all natural things that people could do if somebody recognizes that they have these chronic migraines, what can they do for prevention? What are some of the classic things you tell people who see you to focus on? One of the first things I tend to look at is dietary triggers. We overlook that and everyone knows, you know, coffee and chocolate and red wine might be a You're just a really blowing. You just about as good as news of the 20 years of menopause. Chocolate and wine and coffee. This is going to give me a migraine, I'm telling we you. We all okay. know that. But there are other things on the list of dietary triggers to include counterintuitive items, such as bananas. I had a patient who came in and said, I went off bananas, like you said, it was on the list. Headaches are gone. Papaya, wow. pumpkin, avocado, things that are so healthy, but in precise patients may trigger a headache. So I look at their diet. I give them the list. I don't tell them to go off of everything on the list. Pick a select few that you eat a lot of. Try it for a month. It may be helpful. The next thing we do is we look at natural supplements that have scientific data. Many patients are not really interested to jump into pharmacogenics and, you know, prescriptions. So they're open to this suggestion. 
one of the big ones that I try initially is riboflavin, which is basically just vitamin B2. It's cheap. It's over-the-counter. And we have a nice study published back in 2004 that showed that without side effects, the patients were tolerating it well, they had about a 50% reduction in headache frequency. And again, wow, no by just effects. taking like vitamin B2. Yes, but it has to be targeted high-dose B vitamin 2. It cannot be a multi, and it should not be a B-complex. You really look for the, the B2, 400 milligrams a day. And that's been shown in studies to really reduce migraine frequency. Do we have any idea why, or is this just something that, hey, it works, so it's all natural, go with it? This, the people in the study did not really postulate uh, why, and so it was just something people were trying different vitamins, targeted therapy, and they just came up with that one. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with my friend from Kaiser Permanente, Dr. Monique Canonico, and she's a neurologist of almost two decades uh, already, and... and as I said, we're getting older. We're hearing all sorts of fun habits I need to cut out. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are some of the other natural things that might help people who are trying to work on migraines and frequency. And then we'll talk a little bit about what a rescue medicine, what's that about? And are there things that you might have in your house that can help you if you're one of the people who unfortunately still has chronic migraines? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, here with Dr. Monique Canonico. She's a neurologist at Kaiser Permanente. And we're talking today about chronic migraines. What can be done to treat these? Are there natural ways to treat them? And what are some of the up-and-coming treatments that some people may have heard about that could actually help people to not have any of their chronic migraines, which sounds fantastic if you're one of the migraine sufferers for more than 15 days a month. So before the break, we were talking about Vitamin B2, riboflavin, this has actually been shown in clinical studies to reduce the frequency of migraines for some individuals by up to 50%. So you could go from, you know, half of a month, headaches, ever migraines, every other day to maybe less than that, which sounds like a great idea. If you've ever had a migraine, any episode less than that is absolutely welcome. So true. What are some of the other natural things? Magnesium, does that do any good? Magnesium is definitely on my list of first tries. It's particularly good for people who have the warning or the visual aura. Um, magnesium glycinate is, is one of the ones that is a little better absorbed, 400 milligrams a day. Uh, the only thing is that as opposed to the riboflavin with no side effects, the magnesium tends to move the bowels through a little more quickly. Like and milk of magnesium. Yes, exactly. Okay. So that... You know, that may be uh, not so helpful for somebody who has diarrhea, but many of my patients actually have constipation and are fine with a little bit of magnesium. So very helpful for headache prevention, particularly migraine with aura. Now, what about the folks who don't have an aura? Should they take some of these things regularly? Could you take riboflavin every day and hopefully see improvement? Could you do a little dose of magnesium every day? Or should it really just be targeted to those who have that aura, that warning? 
Unless they have major problems with irritable bowel or some kind of GI disorder, I do them concurrently, and I will start them both, whether they have migraine with aura or without, because the studies actually included both groups. So it could help no matter what. Absolutely. So those are the natural ones. And you mentioned some people don't like to get on prescription medicine, but there are some prescription medications that over the years have been found to help treat people who have the chronic migraine category. What are some of those? Some of the things we will look at if the natural supplements weren't that effective or maybe not tolerated would be an old-fashioned category of blood pressure medicine called a beta blocker. I still use that quite a bit, and in a number of patients, it can be helpful, particularly adolescents. Uh, We have some old-fashioned antidepressants that aren't used by the psychiatrists anymore, but the neurology and pain community still uses quite a bit, such as nortriptyline or amitriptyline. And lastly, there's another category called... uh, um, calcium channel blockers. And those in some patients who have maybe a vertigo component to the headache could be really helpful. So is it serendipitously that we found out that these blood pressure treatments actually help to reduce migraines? Or do you think there's a connection between migraines and hypertension or mechanism of action of the medicine? How did we figure this out? Yeah, it was serendipitously, but really uh, a lot of the studies had to do with people postulating that the blood vessels, although they're not the primary feature, they are a secondary feature in the migraine cascade where these elaborate proteins are being you know, exuded all over the brain, and, and in particularly the covering of the brain, that the blood vessels will dilate. And so that the, the beta blocker seems to calm that down and the blood vessels don't tend to dilate as much. So there is a connection. Yeah. Well, and if you're hypertensive, that's even better because you might be on these medications anyway. Call that a targeted therapy. So if you had a little blood pressure, maybe borderline, my first choice could be that. Sure. Now you mentioned those antidepressants that are not used as antidepressants anymore. And You know, I I remember the first time that I gave someone nortriptyline, it was at a very low dose, I think 25 milligrams or so, Mm -hmm. and they received this wonderful information from the pharmacy. The dose for depression might be 250 milligrams. The dose that you use for migraine prevention is much less than that, you know, 10 milligrams, 25 milligrams. And I, that's one of those things you don't forget. Mm -hmm. That patient (laughs) called me yelling and said, why are you giving me an antidepressant? I'm not depressed. They were very upset about it. And I said, well, oh no, you got the pharmacy info because it's true that at certain doses it is used for that, but at a lower dose, it doesn't necessarily have those same effects. And in fact, we're now seeing that these particular classes of medicines, the tricyclics in those lower doses, they actually can be used for chronic pain, not just migraine pain, but other areas as well. Sometimes people who have shingles or chronic shingle pain may also get a benefit because we think it affects the nerves themselves. Mm -hmm. And that may have a reason why it works for chronic migraines in addition to other types of discomfort. Along those lines, would something... Would any of the anti-seizure medicines like Tegretol or even some of the Lyrica or Gabapentins work in this situation? They're used often for other chronic nerve pain. Do they have any role in the treatment for chronic migraine prevention or not really? Yeah, so great question. The um, anti-seizure medications, really, we tend to start with topiramate or topamax because it does have the FDA approval. It has a little more of the side effects that some patients don't like such as drowsiness or slowing of their thinking process. 
But in terms of efficacy, topiramate is probably our most efficacious uh, anti-epileptic. I do occasionally use gabapentin and not so much Lyrica unless, like you said, you know, for chronic pain like a neuropathy or something. So there might be another reason why they would use that in particular. Now, there's a brand new class of medications that are out there, sort of a new blockbuster treatment for chronic migraine therapy. And that's something that a lot of folks may not, they certainly wouldn't jump to it as a primary treatment, but they may not be aware of. What are What is that class of medicine and what does it do? Yeah. So this is kind of groundbreaking news in the migraine community. Uh, we're all super excited about it. Like you say, it's not first line and usually you've tried the herbals and a couple prescription preventives, but Perhaps they weren't affected, and your life is is still derailed because of these chronic migraines, greater than 15 days a month, impacting lifestyle. The new class that you were asking about is calcitonin gene-related peptide blockers, and we call them, uh, by way of abbreviation, CGRP inhibitors, and it's really just blocking one of these proteins that's elaborated in the migraine cascade. So by blocking the protein, presumably you're blocking this this cascade of of things that cause the migraine. Exactly. Is it a pill? Is it injected? How is it used? So these drugs are targeted therapies, and they're in a new class of therapies, relatively new, maybe in the last 20 years, called monoclonal antibodies. And all that is is a very fancy targeted immune cell that is going to target, you know, one specific area of a specific cascade. And so these those medications actually just, you know, target that and they they will try to hit the precise mechanism so that the migraines will be decreased. And if they were to do so, then this would be something that potentially does it make somebody who has over 15 migraines a month have no migraines or does it just reduce the incidence and the frequency how has that worked out so far yeah so there's been pretty consistent data in the three cgrp inhibitors that we have approved and that is typically along the range of about a 50 percent reduction but like you say if you're having you know 19 headaches a month and it goes down to 10 that's a game changer sure And is it a pill? Is it an injection? How do you take them? Because these medications, these CRGP inhibitors, are very large molecules, they are not processed through the liver or the kidney. That's a nice feature because it doesn't interact with other medications the individual may be taking. But it's definitely not something we can just take in a pill form. So they do actually have uh, an injection that is an auto-injector, disposable device. Almost, I tell my patients to think of it as an EpiPen. They, they will do it once a month in their own home. We do a teaching in the clinic typically, and they never have to see the needle because it's all confined in the auto injector. Some of them are pre-filled syringes, but uh, some of them are auto. So this would be something where even if they, they wouldn't wait until they had the symptoms, they would do this once a month, every month on a fairly regular schedule to make sure they could get the maximum benefit. Excellent point. This is not a rescue treatment. It is prevention. But that's also what makes it exciting because then they don't have to treat the pain and they may prevent. Now, so far, these medications have been kind of given in if somebody doesn't respond to the other medicines and they have the criteria to need to use those. Have you seen a lot of success with folks who have used them in your own practice? So anecdotally, I have found sort of the 30-30-30 
rule, which is 30% of the people are what we call super responders. This has been unbelievable for them. I haven't heard from them since they went on it other than to check a couple labs and, you know, do the refill. 30% had maybe a reduction, but it was variable over the three-month period when they're keeping their headache diary. And the rest uh, may have not responded. So it's, uh, you know, it's variable. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with my friend, Dr. Monique Canonico from Kaiser Permanente. She's a neurologist. We've been in practice almost the same amount of time. And we're talking today about chronic migraines. When we come back, we're going to talk about what are the treatment medicines. So we've talked about ways that you can prevent these migraines. What are some of the things you can do if, oops, prevention didn't work and your migraine is here? We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Monique Canonico from Kaiser Permanente. She's been there almost 20 years. Prior to that, you mentioned you were a tripler for about four years. And so now you're treating people who have chronic migraines. So up until now, we talked about what are some of the prevention ways that you could try and avoid having these. What about if you have it? What if the migraine has started? What are some of the things you can do to treat it? The migraine patients will typically like to lie down in a dark room and block out the light and the sound and often will reach for an ice pack. And that seems to be making sense to me because the blood vessels may constrict and perhaps that decreases the mechanism of the cascade. After they do those, a lot of times they'll try for the -the over-the-counters like the ibuprofen, Excedrin migraine is another fan fave, but... um, Often those aren't helpful. Because it's just gone too far down that path. Too long, yes. Could just resting in a dark room and keeping away from bright lights and loud sounds, could that alone help it to resolve? Or would that not even, if, if ibuprofen doesn't work, maybe that doesn't work either. Yeah, good point. I have a number of patients who will be able to sleep it off. And when they wake up, the headache is gone. I have found recently, though, my patients tell me that they say previously, 10 years ago, I could take a nap and the headache would go away. But now I try that and I wake up and it returns. And it's still there. So it depends. So what do you do then? Typically, the prescribing provider will move on to prescription rescue agents, which may involve things like the triptans, which have been around for a long time. A lot of migraine patients are familiar with the risotriptan, the sumatriptan, naratriptan, elatriptan. And these are targeted um, specifically to some serotonin receptors and have been very helpful for many, but certainly not for all. And you have to take them pretty early at the onset of the That's migraine. You exactly can't wait right. if you've had this for eight hours. It might not work as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And some of them are not just oral. I mean, if you get nauseous and you're vomiting, you can't take a pill. You're going to return it. So some of them are, I I know there are injectables, there's nasal Mm -hmm. sprays, there's a variety of different like dissolvable tablets under your tongue. So they're trying to come up with good formats for these, for those people who can't tolerate taking a pill. But if the medicine doesn't work and you don't respond to it, it doesn't matter what form, you're not responding to it. 
Yes, particularly since the migraineurs are often so plagued by nausea and they can't keep anything down. Plus, the nausea itself is overwhelming. And so I have found recently in the last 10 years that the Ondansetron um, tablet that dissolves on the tongue can be helpful not only for the nausea that accompanies the pain, but also the pain itself. And so I'll often do the Zofran sublingual, and that just goes right on the tongue. And patients often call for refills on that, so I know it helps. And what if that doesn't work? I mean, is there any role for just taking standard old pain medication? Right. So a lot of times we'll move on to the more powerful anti-inflammatories, like a higher dose naproxen, and that can be useful for rescue. We really try to stay away from narcotics and things like that because it can increase their risk for a rebound headache, which is basically they're not taking it because they love the headache medicine and how it makes them feel. But it's training the brain to respond to the treatment with another headache. And so we typically try to stay away from that. Tylenol, I've found, doesn't really help for too many migraine patients. So we're left with kind of the prescription, the triptans. And if those don't work, uh, sometimes I will give them uh, a prednisone burst or something like that to calm down the sterile inflammation. So that can also happen that, you know, when we talk about why would ibuprofen work or why would, you know, naproxen work, it may be because it also is an anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. I always found Excedrin migraine to be curious because it's this combination of aspirin, Tylenol, and caffeine. <laughs> so it reduces the, you know, caffeine generally shrinks blood vessels, so it helps to reduce that dilation. But then you also have that anti-inflammatory effect to the aspirin. And I don't know, Tylenol is just thrown in there. I, I don't know why, but, it, exactly. but it's in that pill. <laughs> so that may help. But in particular, I've told some folks, you know, if, if caffeine helps you, I've had patients who have said, I go drink a cup of coffee and take two aspirin. And literally, that's almost the Excedrin, but it's in a different format. And they feel better. As long as it's not two in the morning, life is good. In particular, that's a great point. I will tell my patients planning pregnancy to go caffeine naive, which is, okay, you're planning it. You go off all the caffeine. You get pregnant in the next three to four months. And then when you get pregnant in that first trimester, when the headaches spike, and we know it decreases as the headaches, um, as the pregnancy progresses, taking one cup of coffee works a miracle. And that's great because in pregnancy, we don't have much to offer. Yeah, a lot of the medications, we just, it's not really ethical to study them in pregnant women and go, we hope everything turns out okay. So because of that, we're somewhat limited. But that's a great idea is to to get rid of the caffeine so that you become more sensitive to it when you do Mm -hmm. use it. Yep. Are there any other myths that people have about migraines that you think deserve to be busted? Yeah, so I think... um there is a, a certain stigmatization of it that the people are perhaps being overdramatic. And, you know, when when a coworker may call in because his headache is so severe, there may be some, you know, old-fashioned eye rolling and who's going to pick up the slack. But it is a very severe uh, problem. I tell people this is a disease. Uh, likely it was genetically passed on to you by mom or dad or grandpa or grandma and it's a disease but we can get over it but it's a real thing and very big problem uh, not to be overlooked well that's a really important point because 
if you can't function, if you need to stay in a dark room, going to work isn't going to help you, particularly if you're in an area, bright light, computer, all this kind of different paraphernalia that you have to be able to use. So staying in your house and not leaving is going to be most effective for you. And you're right, we have to respect the fact this is a disease process and make sure that we make people feel comfortable that they can treat how they need to to get rid of that condition. Yes, and another myth uh, going on that uh, frame of thinking was basically um, exercise is so important in the prevention of it too. So I love to have them, you know, really try to get into a regime. You really blow me away, man. Cut the caffeine, cut the wine, cut ch- <laughs> cut the chocolate, exercise. This has been a lot of fun. All right. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. Dr. Monique Canonico is at Kaiser Permanente, and she is a neurologist helping to stamp out chronic migraine headaches for folks right here in the islands. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you right here next week on The Body Show. See you then. Woo!